As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Do you feel a shiver up your spine from fear? Yes, it's another story from the Nightshade Diary. You know what that means. Check under the bed and make sure no one or nothing is there. Is the closet door securely shut? Then leave your disbelief behind. Amp up your imagination and hang on tight for another ride into terror and mystery. And like all good horror stories, just imagine it's a dark and stormy night. And remember, screaming like a little girl is permitted. The Weed Men by William Hope Hodgson now, on the night when I took my watch, I discovered that there was no moon, and save for such light as the fire threw, the hilltop was in darkness. Yet, though I was not much afraid, I took all precautions that suggested themselves to me, and built up the fire to a goodly height, after which I took my sword and made the round of the camp. At the edges of the cliffs which protected us on three sides, I paused, staring down into the darkness and listening though this latter was of small use because of the strength of the wind which roared continually in my ears. Yet, though I neither saw nor heard anything, I was suddenly gripped by a strange uneasiness which made me return several times to the edge of the cliffs, but always without seeing or hearing anything to justify my suspicions. And so presently, being determined to give way to no fancifulness, I avoided the boundary of cliffs and kept more to that part which commanded the slope up and down, which we made our journeys to and from the beach below. Then, perhaps halfway through my time of watching, there came out of the immensity of weed that lay to leeward a far distant sound that grew upon my ear, rising and rising into a fearsome screaming and shrieking, and then dying away into the distance in queer sobs, and so at last to a note below that of the winds. At this, as might be supposed, I was somewhat shaken to hear so dreadful a noise coming out of that desolation. And then, suddenly, the thought came to me that the screaming was from the ship trapped in the weeds. And I ran immediately to the edge of the cliff, overlooking the weed, and stared into the darkness. But now I perceived by a light which burned in the hulk 
that the screaming had come from some place a great distance to the right of her, and more, as my sense assured me, it could by no means have been possible for those in her to have sent their voices to me against such a breeze as blew at that time. And so, for a time, I stood nervously pondering and peering away into the blackness of the night. In a little while, I perceived a dull glow upon the horizon, and presently there rose into view the upper edge of the moon, and a very welcome sight it was to me, for I had been upon the point of calling the bosun to tell him about the sound I had heard, but I had hesitated, being afraid to seem foolish if nothing more should happen. Then, even as I stood watching the moon rise into view, there came again the beginning of that screaming, like the sound of a woman sobbing with a giant's voice, and it grew and strengthened until it pierced through the roar of the wind with an amazing clearness, and then, slowly, and seeming to echo and echo, it sank away into the distance, and there was again in my ears no sound beyond that of the wind. At this, having looked fixedly in the direction from which the sound had proceeded, I ran straight away to the tent and roused the boatswain, for I had no knowledge of what the noise might portend, and the second cry had shaken from me all my bashfulness. Now the boatswain was upon his feet almost before I had finished shaking him, and catching up his great cutlass, which he always kept by his side, he followed me swiftly to the hilltop. Here I explained to him that I had heard a very fearsome sound, which had appeared to proceed out of the vastness of the weed continent, and that upon a repetition of the noise, I decided to call him, for it might mean some coming danger. At that, the boatswain commended me, though chiding me in that I had hesitated to call him at the first occurrence of the crying, and then, following me to the edge of the leeward cliff, he stood there with me, waiting and listening, in case there came again a reoccurrence of the noise. For just over an hour we stood there, very silent and listening, but there came to us no sound beyond the continuous noise of the wind, and so by the time, having grown somewhat impatient of waiting and the moon being well risen, the boatswain beckoned to me to make the round of the camp with him. Now, just as I turned away, chancing to look downward at the clear water directly below, I was amazed to see an innumerable multitude of great fish were swimming from the weed continuant towards the island. At that I stepped nearer the edge, for they came so directly towards the island that I expected to see them close in shore. Yet I could not perceive one, for they seemed to vanish at a point some thirty yards distant from the beach, and at that, being amazed both by the numbers of the fish and their strangeness, and the way in which they came on continually, yet never reached the shore, I called to the boatswain to come and see, for he had gone on a few paces. Upon hearing my call, he came running back, whereat I pointed into the sea below. At that he stooped forward and peered very intently, and I with him, yet neither one of us could discover the meaning of so curious an exhibition. And so for a while we watched, the boatswain being as interested as I. Presently, however, he turned away, saying that we were foolish to stand peering at every curious sight, when we should be looking to the welfare of the camp. And so we began to go to the round of the hilltop. Now, while we had been watching and listening, we had let the fires die down to a dangerously low level, and consequently, though the moon was rising, there was by no means the same brightness that should have made the camp light. On perceiving this, I went forward to throw some fuel onto the fire, and then, even as I moved, it seemed to me that I saw something stir in the shadow of the tent, and at that I ran toward the place, uttering a shout and waving my sword, 
Yet I found nothing, and so feeling somewhat foolish, I turned to make up the fire, as had been my intention. And whilst I was thus busied, the boatswain came running over to me to know what I had seen. And in that same instant, three of the men ran out of the tent, awakened by my sudden cry. But I had not to tell them, save that my fancy had played me a trick, and had shown me something where my eyes could find nothing. And at that, two of the men went back to resume their sleep. But the third, the big fellow to whom the boatswain had given the other cutlass, came with us, bringing his weapon. And though he kept silent, it seemed to me that he had gathered something of our uneasiness. And for my part, I was not sorry to have his company. Presently, we came to that portion of the hill which overhung the valley, and I went to the edge of the cliff, intending to peer over. For the valley had a very unholy fascination for me. Yet no sooner had I glanced down then I started and ran back to the boatswain and plucked him by the sleeve, and at that perceiving my agitation, he came with me in silence to see what matter had caused me so much quiet excitement. Now, when he looked over, he also was astounded, and drew back instantly. Then, using great caution, he bent forward once more and stared down, and at that the big seaman came up behind, walking upon his toes, and stooped to see what manner of thing we had discovered. Thus we each of us stared down upon a most unearthly sight, for the valley all beneath us was alive with moving creatures, white and unwholesome in the moonlight, and their movements were somewhat like the movements of monstrous slugs, though the things themselves had no resemblance to such in their contours, but reminded me of naked humans, very fleshy and crawling upon their stomachs, yet their movements were surprisingly rapid, and now, looking a little over the boatswain's shoulder, I discovered that these hideous things were coming up from the pit-like pool in the bottom of the valley that we had seen the day before, and suddenly I remembered the multitudes of strange fish which we had seen swimming toward the island, but which had all disappeared before reaching the shore, and I had no doubt that they entered the pit through some natural passage known to them beneath the water. These things below had each two short and stumpy arms, but the ends appeared divided into hateful and wriggling masses of small tentacles, which slid hither and thither as the creatures moved about the bottom of the valley, and at their hind ends, where they should have grown feet, there seemed other flickering bunches, but it must not be supposed that we saw these things clearly. Now, it is scarcely possible to convey the extraordinary disgust which the sight of these human slugs bred in me. Were I successful, then others would wretch even as I did, to spasm coming on without premonition and born of very horror. And then suddenly, even as I stared, sick with loathing and apprehension, there came into view not a fathom below my feet, a face like no other face I had seen, even in a nightmare. It was indeed a face from a dreadful nightmare. At that, I could have screamed, had I been in less terror, for the great eyes as big as crown pieces, the bill like an inverted parrot's, and the slug-like undulating of its white and slimy body, bred in me the dumbness of one mortally stricken. And even as I stayed there, my helpless body bent and rigid, the boatswain spat a mighty curse in my ear, and leaning forward, smote at the thing with his cutlass, for in the instant that I had been looking at it, it had advanced upward, by so much as a yard. Now at this action of the boatswain's, I came suddenly into possession of myself and thrust downward with so much vigor that I nearly followed the brute's carcass, for I overbalanced 
and danced giddily for a moment upon the edge of eternity. And then the boatswain had me by the waistband, and I was back in safety. But in that instant, through which I had struggled for my balance, I had discovered that the face of the cliff was nearly hidden by the things which were climbing up towards us. And I turned to the boatswains, crying out to him that there were thousands of them. Yet he was gone already running towards the fire and shouting to the men in the tent to haste to our help for their very lives. And then he came back, racing with a great armful of the weed. And after him came the big seamen, carrying a burning tuft from the campfire. And so in a few moments we had a blaze, and the men were bringing more weed. For we had a very good stock upon the hilltop, for which the Almighty be thanked. Now scarce had we lit one fire, when the boatswain cried out to the big seamen to make another, further along the edge of the cliff. And in the same instant I shouted, and ran over to that part of the hill, which lay towards the open sea for I had seen a number of moving things about the edge of the seaward cliff. Now here there was a deal of shadow, for there were scattered certain large masses of rock about this part of the hill, and these held off both the light of the moon and that from the fires. Here I came abruptly upon three great shapes southly crawling toward the camp, and behind these I dimly saw that they were others. Then, with a loud cry for help, I made at the three, and as I charged, they rose up on end at me. And I found that they overtopped me, and their vile tentacles were reaching out to me. Then I was smiting and gasping, sick with the sudden stench of the creatures. And then something clutched at me, something slimy and vile, and great mandibles champed in my face. But I stabbed upward, and the thing fell from me, leaving me dazed and sick and smiting weakly. Then there came a rush of feet behind and a sudden blaze, and the boatswain crying out encouragement. And directly he and the big seamen thrust themselves in front of me, hurling from them great masses of burning weed, which they had borne upon a long reed. And immediately the things were gone, slithering hastily down over the cliff edge. And so, presently, I was more my own man and made to wipe from my throat the slime left by the clutch of the monster. And afterward, I ran from fire to fire with weed, feeding them, and so a space passed, during which we had safety. For by that time, we had all fires all about the top of the hill, and the monsters were in mortal dread of fire. Else had we been dead, all of us, that night. Now, a while before the dawn, we discovered for the second time since we had been upon the island that our fuel could not last us the night at the rate at which we were compelled to burn it. And so the boatswain told the men to let out every second fire, and thus we staved off for a while the time when we would have to face a spell of darkness and the things which at present the fires held off from us. And so at last, we came to the end of the weed and the reeds, and the boatswain called out to us to watch the cliff edges very carefully, and smite on the instant that anything showed. But that, should he call, all were to gather by the central fire for a last stand. And after that, he cursed the moon, which had passed behind a great bank of cloud. And thus matters were, and the gloom deepened as the fire sank lower and lower. Then I heard a man curse, on that part of the hill which lay towards the weed continent, his cry coming up to me against the wind, and the boatswain shouted to us all to have a care, and directly afterwards I smote at something that rose silently above the edge of the cliff opposite to where I watched. Perhaps a minute passed, and then there came shouts from all parts of the hilltop, and I knew that the weed men were upon us, and in the same instant there came two above the edge near me, rising with a ghostly quietness, yet moving lithely. Now the first I pierced somewhere in the throat, and it fell backwards, 
but the second, though I thrust it through, caught my blade with a bunch of its tentacles, and was like to have snatched it from me. But that I kicked it in the face, and at that, being, I believe, more astonished than hurt, it loosed my sword, and immediately fell away out of sight. Now this had taken in all no more than some ten seconds, yet already I perceived so many as four others coming into view a little to my right, and at that it seemed to me that our deaths must be very near, for I knew not how we were to cope with the creatures, coming as they were so boldly and with such rapidity. Yet I hesitated not, but ran at them, and now I thrust not, but cut at their faces and found this to be very effectual, for in this wise I disposed of three in as many strokes, but the fourth had come right over the cliff edge and rose up at me upon its hind parts, as had done others when the boatswain had succored me. At that, I gave way, having a very lively dread. But hearing all about me the cries of conflict, and knowing that I could expect no help, I made at the brute. Then as it stooped and reeked out one of its bunches of tentacles, I sprang back and slashed at them. And immediately I followed this by a thrust in the stomach, and at that it collapsed into a writhing white ball that rolled this way and that, and so in its agony, coming to the edge of the cliff, it fell over, and I was left sick and nearly helpless with the stateful stench of the brutes. Now by this time all the fires about the edges of the hill were sunken into dull glowing mounds of embers, though that which burnt near to the entrance of the tent was still of a good brightness. Yet this helped us but little, for we fought too far beyond the immediate circle of its beams to have benefit of it, and still the moon at which now I threw a despairing glance was no more than a ghostly shape behind the great bank of cloud which was passing over it. Then even as I looked upwards, glancing over my left shoulder, I saw with a sudden horror that something had come up behind me, and upon the instant I caught the reek of the thing and leapt fearfully to one side, turning as I sprang. Thus was I saved in the very moment of my destruction, for the creature's tentacles smeared the back of my neck as I leapt, and then I had smitten once and again and conquered. Immediately after this, I saw something crossing the dark space that lay between the dull mound of the nearest fire and that which lay further along the hilltop. And so, wasting no moment of time, I ran toward the thing and cut it twice across the head before it could even get upon its hind parts, in which position I had learned greatly to dread them. Yet no sooner had I slain this one than there came a rush of maybe a dozen upon me, these having climbed silently over the cliff edge in the meanwhile. At this I dodged and ran madly towards the glowing mound of the nearest fire, and the brutes followed me almost so quick as I could run. But I came to the fire first, and then a sudden thought coming to me. I thrust the point of my sword among the embers, and threw a great shower of them at the creatures, and at that, at a momentary clear vision of many white hideous faces stretched out towards me, and brown champing mandibles, which had the upper beak shedding into the lower, and the clump, wiggling tentacles were all aflutter. Then the gloom came again, but immediately I threw another and yet another shower of the burning embers towards them, so directly I saw them give back, and then they were gone. At this, all about the edges of the hilltop, I saw the fires being scattered in like manner, for the others had adopted this device to help them in their sore straits. For a little after this, I had a short breathing space. The brutes seemed to have taken fright, Yet I was full of trembling, and I glanced hither and thither, not knowing when one or more of them would come upon me. And ever I glanced towards the moon, and prayed the Almighty that the clouds would pass quickly, else should we all be dead men. And then, as I prayed, there suddenly rose a terrible scream from one of the men, and in the same moment there came something over the edge of the cliff fronting me. 
but I cleft it before it could rise higher, and in my ears there echoed still the sudden scream which had come from that part of the hill which lay to the left of me. Yet I dared not to leave my station, for to have done so would have been to have risked all, and so I stayed, tortured by the strain of ignorance and my own terror. Again, I had a little spell in which I was free from all station, nothing coming into sight as far as I could see to right or left of me, though others were less fortunate as the curses and sounds of blows told me. And then abruptly, there came another cry of pain, and I looked upon the moon and prayed aloud that it might come out to show some light before we were all destroyed, but it remained hid. Then a sudden thought came to my brain, and I shouted at the top of my voice to the bosun to set the great crossbow upon the central fire, for thus we should have a big blaze, the wood being very nice and dry. Twice I shouted to him, saying, Burn the bow! Burn the bow! And immediately he replied, shouting to all the men to run to him and carry it to the fire. And this we did, and bore it to the center fire, and then ran back with all our speed to our places. Thus in a minute we had some light, and the light grew as the fire took hold of the great log, the wind fanning it to a blaze. And so I faced outwards, looking to see if any vile faces showed above the edge before me, or to my right or left. Yet I saw nothing save, as it seemed to me, once a fluttering tentacle came up, a little to my right, but nothing else for a space. Perhaps it was near five minutes later that there came another attack, and in this I came near to losing my life, through my falling venturing too near to the edge of the cliff, for suddenly there shot up out of the darkness below a clump of tentacles and caught me about the left ankle, and immediately I was pulled to a sitting position so that both my feet were over the edge of the precipice, and it was only by the mercy of God that I did not plunge head foremost into the valley. Yet, as it was, I suffered a mighty peril, for the brute that had my foot put a vast strain upon it trying to pull me down. But I resisted, using my hands and seat to sustain me, and so discovering that it could not compass my end in this wise. It slacked somewhat of the stress and bit at my boot, shearing through the hard leather and nigh destroying my small toe. But now, being no longer compelled to use both hands and to retain my position, I slashed down with a great fury, being maddened by the pain and the mortal fear which the creature had put upon me. Yet I was not immediately free of the brute, for it caught my sword blade, but I snatched it away before it could take a proper hold, cutting its feelers somewhere nearby. Though of this I cannot be sure, for they seem not to grip round the thing, but to suck to it. Then in a moment, by a lucky blow, I maimed it, so that it loosed me and I was able to get back into some condition of security. And from this onward, we were free from molestation, though we had no knowledge but that the quietness of the weed mend did but portend a fresh attack. And so at last it came to the dawn, and all this time the moon came out, not to our help, being quite hid by the clouds, which now covered the whole arc of the sky, making the dawn of a very desolate aspect. And so soon as there was sufficiency of light, we examined the valley, but there was nowhere any of the weed men, no, not even any of the dead, for it seemed they had carried off all such and their wounded, and so we had no opportunity to make an examination of the monsters by daylight. Yet, though we could not come upon their dead, all about the edges of the cliffs were blood and slime, and from the latter there came ever the hideous stench which marked the brutes. But from this we suffered little, the wind carrying it far away to leeward and filling our lungs with sweet and wholesome air. Presently, seeing that the danger was past, the boatswain called us to the center fire, 
on which burnt still the remnants of the great bow. And here we discovered for the first time that one of the men was gone from us. At that we made search about the hilltop, and afterwards in the valley and about the island, but found him not. Though the bow was destroyed in the fire, the men from the Glen Carrig eventually made contact with the ship, and together with those on board, sailed for home. Montage of Death by Robert Haining It's not that I don't believe in what you call horror. It's just that I don't believe in your interpretation. My companion sat back in his chair, gazing intently at me, urging me to ask the obvious. And what is your interpretation, I asked. I don't believe in these ghost things you talk about, ghouls and the like. Real horror, unimaginable fear, is born in the mind. We are no more than highly complex and highly sensitive computers because we are no more than our mind, our brain. Upset our brains and our world collapses, though outwardly we appear quite normal. Real horror comes to the mentally disturbed. The normal events we sense in the course of a day are to them deformed and distorted. They struggle to rationalize, but this only confuses them more. They become lost in a web of part reality, part unreality. Their judgment becomes shattered as the most ordinary events like a half-lit room or a knock on the door take on ghastly significance. They are totally unsure. He paused briefly. Let me give you an example. Five days ago, a struggling young artist hanged himself in a small flat in the east end of London. He was only 25 and, from what we can gather, had some talent but less luck. But it was the manner of this death that drew the attention of the police. For not only had he hanged himself, but as he dangled from the rope, he had stabbed himself six times with a knife, a blunt bread knife. The immediate questions were, why had he killed himself, and why in so gruesome a manner? I want to read you a letter that he wrote, presumably only hours before he took his life. Perhaps it will explain to you why I take the view I do. My name is Gerald Miller. I am an artist. Do not pity me, for death comes as a release to the tormented mind. Even as I write, I crave death, but write I must if I am not to be thought of as a coward. I once saw a film where they shot people out of kindness and mercy to relieve the agony after a nuclear explosion. I know that there is a mental agony that is as great. I feel it now, but no one would kill me. They will put me in an asylum, but that is no good. My mind is in the deepest hell, for no longer tells me what I see or feel. Everything changes. Nothing is the same for any length of time. Perhaps I shall not finish this before my mind is transformed again. We are our minds. They are us. We are not separate from them. Our identity is in them. If our mind falters, we have no hope. I once conceived an idea. Perhaps I was mad when I first conceived it, but it seemed real. I would make a statue in wax, and if my own genius was not enough as it seemed not to be, I would purchase waxwork figures that I thought to have some good quality, like a well-shaped hand or a distinguished head or well-modeled leg, and cut that portion off to melt down to use in my statue. I hoped that by doing this, I would somehow be inspired by the same muse that inspired that first artist. You think it is silly? I may have been mad to think of it. To say now that I think it was worthwhile may mean that I am still mad. Still, I wish to try. Why not? I had no other talent. There is not much to tell. I spent weeks searching for such figures. I tried every back street shop I could find. Often I could not buy because it was too expensive. 
Rarely did I find the genius I sought. But after three months, I had acquired twelve waxwork figures, all of which possessed some characteristic I admired. Perhaps it was only a flicker, perhaps it wasn't there. But I saw touches of genius in their work, which only I had recognized, and which would put them together, mold them afresh into a great work of art. My companion stopped reading. Do you think he was mad then? The idea is rather far-fetched, but it was not dissimilar to what all good artists should do study the work of others better than themselves, but actually to use their material? Yes, that struck me too. Why did he have to use their material? He seemed to be destroying their genius. Read on, I said. So, I began to work. Cutting up the figures was harder than I thought. In fact, it proved incredibly difficult, and sometimes I would have to salt to get through. I spent hours in that dimly lit room downstairs, cutting the limbs and heads and torsos off my favorite waxworks. I worked all night on some occasions, cutting, cutting, cutting. It was while I was cutting the fifth waxwork that I noticed blood on my hand. I first thought I had cut my hand and not felt it. I wiped it off and continued surprised, though, to find no cut on my hand. Then more blood. Oh, God. I can see it still. My hands were covered in blood, the knife, too, and the waxwork. It gushed as if an artery had been cut. I was covered in blood, and all the while I stared at its face. And suddenly all around me the waxworks I had cut were bleeding too. I leapt up and threw down the knife and rushed from the room. Waxworks bleeding, it couldn't be true. Waxworks can't bleed. I ran upstairs and washed my hands, took off my clothes and burned them. I stood shivering in the middle of the room. I cannot remember all that happened that night. I lay on the bed thinking about the waxworks, the blood, and the fact that they were downstairs. Was it blood, or had I suffered an hallucination? Was it a trick of the light, or was it a trick of a tired mind? I did not ask if it was a trick of a mind slowly going mad. I wandered all next day in the parks of London. I did not know where I went. Somehow I had to face that room again, to see if it was real blood I saw. But whichever it was, I would be left confused and frightened. And so it was not till five days after that terrible night that I ventured back into the room. I pushed open the door and let it swing back on its hinges. A scene of utter confusion lay before me. Chairs and tables were lying on the floor. I thought then that I had pushed them over when I had fled. On the floor too lay the pieces of waxwork and the knife I had thrown down. But there was no blood. Even now I don't know if I was relieved or not. I was relieved that the horrific was not true, but frightened that what had happened once might happen again. So I continued working. I had to otherwise, all my money spent would have been utterly wasted. I worked shorter hours than I had done before that terrible night. I was petrified in case it should happen again. At night, I lay on my bed thinking about it. Was it real? Was it a hallucination? Eventually, I began to convince myself that it was all a dream. After all, wasn't that the only rational explanation? By the middle of March, I had composed myself sufficiently to be able to work longer hours, but it meant that I often went for walks in the evening. On one such walk, something else happened to break through my blissful disregard. I can remember now as I turned for home walking past a graveyard. Through the trees, I saw a man shoveling earth into a grave. God knows why, but I opened the grave gate and walked in. As I approached, he must have heard my footsteps on the gravel, for he stopped. He withdrew his spade from the mound of dirt and turned round very slowly. He smiled and said in a quiet voice, 
Good evening, what brings you out at such a late hour? I said nothing, but walked towards the grave. I can remember hearing him say, a man shouldn't look on death. And he kept repeating it, but his voice faded and I moved closer to the edge of the grave and looked in. There was no coffin, only a face appearing through the dirt that had been replaced. I stared at it. Oh God. I fell back and was violently sick on the ground. The face was the face of the waxwork figure that had first bled. And suddenly everything was no more and I was walking along the banks of the Thames near the mud flats. The moon was high and I was alone. I shivered and fell in the mud and looking towards the half moon prayed to God to end this misery. I think it must have been two days before I eventually returned home. I can remember staring up at the front door, not sure whether it was my house and even if it was, whether I should go in, but I went in. The waxworks. I moved to the door and threw it open. Lying there were the fragments of the twelve dismembered waxworks. I leant against the door, breathing heavily and my heart pounding, but inwardly relieved. All was normal. Nowhere could I find the head that had startled me earlier. And once again, I began to imagine it was all a nightmare. I did not wish to believe it was anything else. As the days passed, the work proceeded well. The molds were made and the figures began to take shape. I threw the remnants of the twelve figures somewhere. It is funny, but I can't remember where. It only goes to show what I had always thought. He goes off on a long ranting piece about his insanity, said my companion. It is almost legible and of not much interest. He degrades himself to the limit, calls himself every obscenity under the sun, demonstrates the absolute despair he was in and the utter contempt he had for himself. He continued with a letter. But I must return to the narrative, for I have not much time, nor is there much more to tell. I think of another such incident as I had had with the waxworks or at the graveyard, which I might add I have never seen since, had occurred again, I would have given up the scheme. But there was not much more to do. I must press on. The events of the past two days are painful to me, but I must relate them. They have confirmed my belief, either my personal insanity or a hostile world that is utterly incomprehensible to me. Either way, there is no hope for me. It was again early evening when I came to put the finishing touches to my work. A touch of paint. That was all. Already, I began to feel the object was a monstrosity rather than a work of art. My idea had failed, but perhaps I had learnt from my mistake. Still, it was almost done. I was thirsty, so I left the room to make some tea. As I wound my way back through the unending quarters of the house, from the kitchen to the workroom, I became uneasy. I began to shiver, and so I buttoned my coat. Turning the handle of the workroom door, I noticed a draught coming from underneath it. I paused only briefly. Inside the candle had gone out, and as I began to relight it, a strange smell overwhelmed me, like the smell of rotting meat and damp. In the flickering half-light of that room was the most incredible creature I had ever seen. It had a human form, but yet was not human. It leered at me. Its head slumped forward and a thin smile on its lips. The face I had seen in the grave, the face of the waxwork that had blood. My waxwork had been changed into a savage beast. A creature so horrific I could bear the sight no more. I ran from the room. Either I am mad or... That is the end of the letter. After writing it, as you know, he hanged himself. What do you think he saw? I asked. Had his waxwork been changed? 
or was he going mad? I cannot judge, my companion replied. Let it suffice to say at this point that when he went downstairs and opened the door, he saw the most hideous and monstrous waxwork, but it was undeniably human. It merely lacked artistic merit. It seemed then that the man suffered a terrible hallucination. The slightly eccentric mind had been pushed beyond the limit in a room of flickering candles and the realization of his own lack of talent. So there is no horror except in the mind? But that is not the end of the story. True, I too was content with that explanation except for one small fact. There was no handle on the outside of the door. Do you remember that when he first returned to the room where he had the experience of the waxworks bleeding, he pushed open the door, but when he returned on the last occasion before he saw this creature, he had to turn a handle? It seemed a small point, and true enough, there was no catch on the door of the place where he discovered the waxwork model. I went to the kitchen through the maze of corridors he talked about, but it was no maze, a long passage, but no maze. I must have looked particularly eager at this point, for he said firmly, nor did we discover any secret passages, only a door to a coal cellar. When we first opened it, we were met by utter darkness. We got a lamp and staggered in and immediately were hit by the foulest smell. Our artist described it as the smell of rotting meat and damp. It was that indeed, and bitterly cold. As our lamps played along the walls and floors of the coal cellar, we were met by the most hideous sense of devastation. Scenes of dismembered corpses lay across the floor. Blood covered the floor, and in one corner, supported by props, was the most hideous and gruesome creature I've ever seen. It was indeed a partly human form, but its head was lolled forward, and before its support, it would have collapsed to the floor and broken up into the fragments of human body which it was constructed. A veritable Frankenstein's monster, but utterly dead. The most crude stitching held it together. Around it lay the corpses that had gone together to make up this hideous replica of a human form. Surely he could not have killed these people himself. No, indeed. They were identified and shown to come from various graveyards where they had been laid to rest inside the last three months. His only crime was grave robbing. How can you explain it? A dual personality? A most hideous one? It would be nice to say that while he constructed his waxwork masterpiece, his other half robbed graves and took a most hideous vengeance on these corpses who stood for all those critics who had mocked him. Who knows why it happened? The why is not important. That he had two halves to his life and never the twain did meet is obvious. When they did meet, they sparked off the insanity that lay in his brain. As reality and reality mixed, they created for him an unreality that he could not bear. Yet all the time, it was real. But both forms of reality were bearable while they did not meet. It is interesting that before the corpses could be reinterred in their graves, from each had to remove the dismembered remains of a waxwork figure. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.